Hello, this is a prepaid collect call from an inmate at New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. To accept charges, press 1. You may start the conversation now. My name is John J. Lennon, contributor for Esquire magazine and the Marshall Project. I'm locked up for selling drugs and committing murder. Been in prison 18 years so far. Got about 10 more to go. New York State prison system identifies me as DIN number 04A0823. So I'm a writer and I'm a prisoner. And this is a collect call from Sing Sing. Okay, welcome everyone. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Megan Markham, the Chief Clinical Officer from A Better Life Recovery, which is a treatment center that treats people with addiction and severe mental illness disorders. Dr. Markham, thank you for doing this. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here. So I'm a 12-step recovery guy, and I know recovery is very much about like the group dynamic, meetings, having a healthy network. So these are wild times we live in. What's this look like in these times of uh, COVID-19 for you? You're exactly right. These are definitely different times and 12-step recovery is important for a lot of people, especially um, important in our program. And so with social distancing being a priority right now, we've had to change some of the components of the program. Thankfully, the 12-step community has really banded together and transitioned largely over to video conferencing and meeting online and have really done that successfully. So that's what the clients in our program are doing. And um, I have several friends in recovery. I speak to them too, and they're also doing that. So everyone actually that I've spoken to uh, has made the transition from in-person meetings to online meetings. Yeah, I mean, so as you know, I'm in prison, and there's this this level of stress that that we have in here, sort of being on top of each other. Oh, oh, we have to. Uh, I I uh, I have to cut off. Uh, I have to hang up uh, for a second. I mean, okay. Oh, they're doing some type of uh, thing here, so I may have to call back. Officer's okay. telling me to lot uh, to step in front of myself for a second, so something going on here. Okay. I'll see if I can call right back. Okay. Well. It's okay. It comes with the territory. Things are always dynamic and when you're in a correctional setting and you can't really make your own choices all the time. So no worries. Yeah, no, no kidding. If you want, I can kind of go over what I've prepared to let you know um, what we could talk about and just kind of give you some idea of what I have in terms of content. Yeah, I'd love that. Okay. So I looked up a little bit about stats on addiction in prison and pretty remarkable. 65% of the nation's inmates meet criteria for substance use disorder, so that's over half. Um, and another 20% didn't meet criteria for the diagnosis, but they were under the influence of drugs or alcohol at the time of their crime. Those stats are coming from the National Institute of Drug Abuse. thought that was pretty remarkable. Uh, it's a huge, huge component to the correctional setting. I spent a year uh, in a special handling unit during my training so I worked with inmates who had psychiatric issues in L.A. County Detention Hall. So they were juveniles, but nevertheless, they were uh, in a forensic setting. Wow. And my own experience felt really trapped by the red tape that was involved of how frequently they were allowed to be seen by mental health. The fact that therapy was not what I'm used to in terms of skill-based interventions. It was more like a check-in or crisis management, and that's pretty much it. 
security definitely wasn't the greatest. Uh, I saw drugs or paraphernalia slipped in often. I heard about something getting through at least every week, and I think I was there three days a week. It was just constant. And so the reason why I actually wanted to learn more about chemical dependency treatment myself was because of that experience in the correctional setting and seeing how either every juvenile or family member pretty much had something going on related to substance use. And I felt like I really needed to specialize in order to understand that component better. Um, And so that's kind of what led me to where I'm at today with that experience. And it also led me to not want to work in a correctional setting because I realized it just didn't give me enough freedom as a clinician to do what I thought I needed to do to be helpful. You said something about people not meeting the criteria for drug addiction at the time of their arrest. How how do they not meet the criteria if they might have a problem? (laughs) Right. So the second 20%, they were either on drugs or drunk at the time, but they didn't meet the criteria for substance use disorder, meaning that they hadn't crossed the line into full-blown addiction. So they were either on a binge or it was something that they were kind of dabbling in back and forth recreationally and got caught in that moment, but hadn't developed um, enough symptoms to qualify for a full-on substance use disorder, which means you're not functioning in the environment, which means a lot of times you have tolerance or withdrawal symptoms. And so they haven't necessarily got that far, but they were already involved with drugs and alcohol at the time of their crime. So if you put both of those statistics together, it's 85%. Wow. Do you feel like there needs to be more involvement with, with that, maybe from the what you do in terms of the correctional uh, system? It's clearly a problem, and I think it needs to be addressed more comprehensively than how it is now. So now what I think they offer are 12-step meetings from time to time, some behavioral counseling from time to time. It's really difficult to get uh, medications that treat addiction, like methadone, naltrexone, suboxone. Those are really infrequently offered. In addition, wraparound services when people are leaving prison, like employment, ongoing counseling after release, ongoing check-ins with substance use counselors or drug testing, those things don't happen enough. And so that's where we really have a breakdown and that's where we really need to um, go ahead and get more services for those people. John has written about outpatient programs. Do you feel that's more effective, less effective for formerly incarcerated people specifically? I think always the least amount of restrictive environments that we can successfully treat people are are always the best, right? So if someone has mild depression, we don't want to hospitalize them like we would for someone who's suicidal with a plan. So this is the same, you know, if someone's in danger of overdose and we want to, you know, go ahead and put them in an inpatient detox. But if someone is just struggling Um, On a day-to-day level, then outpatient counseling, drug testing, medication, community support, like 12-step meetings, those things should be widely available to help decrease recidivism. And there is some research that shows that it is effective. Even if it's mandated and not voluntary, it still is effective. So we just need to do those things a little bit more often than not. Do you feel like more involvement from people in your industry, specifically in incarcerated youth, would play a role in reducing the overall incarceration rate in this country? I think it would definitely help anytime we do early intervention or work on issues that are problematic when they first arise, which addiction does generally first arise in childhood or adolescence, that you're you're much more likely to have a significant outcome than you are if you tackle it 10, 12, 15 years after the issue started. And that's not what I saw during my experience. I saw minimal efforts to 
address substance use issues to work on those as treatment goals specifically. Like I said, it, for me, it was a lot of just check-ins, making sure that they're stable, making sure that they're following the rules, uh, making sure that they're not suicidal or crisis management. So they've already done something that they're in crisis and they need to be stabilized. They've already gone psychotic and they need to be stabilized or assessed. That's the kind of treatment that they're doing in, from what my experience was and not sort of what I do in my practice now, which is how do we you know, work on relapse prevention? How do we work on coping skills so that we have tools to use instead of drugs and alcohol? That kind of stuff wasn't available. Do you work with many uh, parole officers in your line of work? I don't work with them directly anymore. Uh, my job now is pretty much administrative, but we have many, many, many clients, probably the majority, who have some sort of issues with the law that are either in their past or they're ongoing currently. And case managers will frequently check in with either probation or parole officer and let them know how the client's doing. We generally have to sign consent to talk to them unless it's court mandated and then sort of the consent kind of goes with the court order. But generally everyone wants their probation officer involved so that they can get the reports of how they're doing, making progress, you know, not testing positive for any drugs or alcohol. They, they want that information to go to their parole or probation officer. And so that's kind of the communication that we do right now. And sometimes we have to let them know when there's been a relapse or when they leave against our advice. You know, sometimes it's not always good news, but that's kind of the way we communicate these days. Is there any kind of striking common thread detail that you've seen with young people going through substance abuse problems? Yeah, there's a few risk factors. You know, low income poverty is a risk factor. Uh, abuse, neglect, uh, domestic violence in the home is a huge risk factor for uh, developing a substance use disorder for school performance behavioral issues, uh, being in a gang, acting out, all of those kind of things happen early in life, can happen early in life, and really set the stage for people looking for a way out of having to deal with those feelings or those experiences, especially trauma. And so there's almost always a co-occurring mental health disorder with the substance use disorder. I very rarely see a substance use disorder where I can't diagnose something else in conjunction. There's almost always a depression, anxiety disorder, a traumatic disorder. There's almost always something else that goes along with it. Hey, Dr. Uh, I'm sorry. I just got some uh, talk about uh, stress. The captain just kind of pulled up on the tier and told us we're all moving to like the larger cell blocks, which is which are the ones that are basically a petri dish, tiers and tiers and tiers, and each told us uh, a bunch of guys just tested positive for COVID-19, and now we have to go back to the blocks where apparently it's just going to be an orgy of COVID-19, and it's I was just in a block where currently the block I'm in has windows. It's a privileged block. They're making these for guys with flu-like symptoms. Yeah, so I'm pretty stressed out at the moment. And they're giving us draft bags to put like, basically it's just like here, throw all your stuff in there and, and go to the uh, go to the petri dish. We got a selfie oh, over there. So uh, yeah. I mean, these are the, these are the kind of situations where well, I mean, I guess I'm I guess I'm grateful to be talking to a psychologist right now. I mean, so I mean, so many people are stressed right now, but there's a lot of fear. I mean, I, I feel like jittery now. Like you know, it's just it's just you know, I'm not used to like feeling fear and feeling like, uh, I don't really know what to say. <laughs> You're not alone in that experience. 
the whole world is kind of dealing with this in some way or the other. And I think stress and anxiety and, um, you know, on this more severe and panic is, is not uncommon for the world to, to be experiencing it. Um, so again, you're not alone in that. Yeah, I mean, and then, and then, so this will probably be my last sort of interview for uh, a while. I'm so used to sort of just like recording other people's, you know, but, you know, when it comes, it falls on you, like in the moment right now, it's pretty dramatic. You know, all the guards are wearing masks. We don't have masks. You know, you, you kind of feel like a kind of speechless. So I did, so I mean, so at this point, there's this, I, I guess there's a sense of powerless over here with guys that I'm around. And, you know, you know, I want to keep their spirits up, and I want to. Uh, I know this is a huge psychological effect. Um, do you have like, you know, tips for us on mindfulness and um, and like these sort of, uh, you know, just this is, you know, this is what you do, and like, you know, I'd love to hear just like in these moments, like, you know, just, you know, what, what, what uh, anything you could sort of tell me about. Absolutely. We could all use some of those tips right now. And actually, outside of the correctional setting, that's a lot of the feedback that I've been asked for. So what do I do? I'm so anxious. I'm so stressed out. How do I deal? Um, So for the people on the outside, uh, we're also not allowed to really interact or intermingle with each other. However, it's still really important to stay socially connected. So uh, how do we do that? You know, we can talk to each other. Um, we can write letters to each other. We can FaceTime each other. I know some of those things are not um, available to you. Hopefully, you guys can let, write letters to each other. You can talk with each other from time to time. Um, but beyond staying socially connected, ways to keep our stress levels down would be to do some things that help monitor stress. So diaphragmatic breathing, you know, those yoga breaths in through your nose, out through your mouth, where you do like six counts in and then hold it for a couple seconds, and then um, six counts out through the mouth. That type of breathing, when you do it over and over, actually lowers your blood pressure and lowers your heart rate and works in similar ways to um, like sedatives, alcohol, Xanax, things like that. Obviously not on that level because it's not a chemical reaction, but it does um, naturally kind of lower your blood pressure and, and kind of help you calm down. So that diaphragmatic breathing is really important to do, especially if you're feeling kind of panicked, if you can breathe that way, you kind of get yourself back down to a a better, more um, calm state. Um, And then visualization, you know, visualizing um, places that make you feel calm, that make you feel safe um, and trying to imagine really all of your five senses and what it feels like to be there, what it smells like to be there, what it you know tastes like, what the sounds that you hear around you, all of those things, if you can visualize. And it's got to be a place, again, that makes you feel safe. It could be grandma's house from the past or, you know, an old church that you visited. It could be someplace you've completely made up, like um, floating on a cloud in the sky. Wherever it is, it just has to make you feel secure, relaxed, and then visualizing that place with all of your five senses on top of doing that breathing that I just talked about is another really good way to kind of help stay in the moment and stay away from those panic thoughts about, oh my God, I can't see this and I have no idea when I'm going to get it, if I'm going to get it. Like those kinds of things shouldn't go around our mind too, too often because we don't have any control over that. So we have to focus on what we do have control over and our breath and what we visualize. It's a couple of really good first steps. 
Yeah, I mean, psychology of it is 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 so, you know, it's, it's you have to be psychologically strong because it's it's we do have TVs in our cells and it is just nonstop COVID and you know you hearing you know who you know who died who who yeah who who had uh who had people you know who trying to tell me I gotta get off the phone so okay. I gotta run. Right, uh, this is probably okay. my last uh, for a while. Sorry, we'll, we'll pick this up when things get better. But for now, I'm going to do some of those exercises you were telling me about. For the record, they uh, seven guys tested positive. I'm going to be on WNYC later today, so I'll, I'll speak to you later, Steve. All right, John. All right. Thanks, man. Be safe, man. The caller has hung up.